You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic, to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation, as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency critique and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Lee McBride, who teaches in the Department of Philosophy at the College of Worcester in Worcester, Ohio, where he also serves as chair of Africana Studies. He writes on a wide range of issues in American philosophy, the pragmatist tradition, and topics of race, affect, and political justice. He is the author of Ethics and Insurrection, A Pragmatism for the Oppressed, published in 2021 by Bloomsbury, and this book is the occasion for our conversation today. In this conversation, we discuss the origins of the book, the place of pragmatism in thinking about race, justice, and liberation work, pessimism and hope, the importance of recasting John Dewey's thought, and the transformative work and influence of Leonard Harris's notion of an insurrectionist ethics. Lee McBride, welcome. It's good to have you here. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Really uh, happy that uh, you made the time. It's the middle of summer, and you know it's a time when it's not exactly easy to get folks uh, you know, to to offer some time for a conversation. But I'm really happy that we had this chance to talk about your book. Uh, I wanted to say at the outset, uh, I really love the book. First of all, uh, I found it really interesting, um, just as a project in the way you execute it. And also, uh, and this is something that people often don't say about academic books that they read, um, but I say it when it's true, which is that I really learned a lot from the book. You know, I didn't just read, have an understanding of what you were saying, and a thought. I actually, I, I, there was a level of learning in the book that I just thought was fantastic. Uh, you know, for and I'm sure I'm one of many who will have that experience of, you know, has a sense of originality in your own voice, textual analysis, putting elements together. And um, there's a lot in those pages. It's not a long book, right. but it reads very much like a long book in a, in a very positive way. So thanks for writing a book uh, like this. I, I absolutely loved reading it. Thanks so much. Um, wow. Uh, very, very kind words. Uh, yeah, no, I think it's it's a book that's um, it, it comes in short on pages, but yeah, there's a lot that went into it. So thanks again. I think I think if you were to ask uh, academic readers, would you like shorter books? Everybody would off the record say yes, because <laughs> yeah. you know I think this you know th- your book uh, has an economic like phrasing and analysis that allows us to think with you. Right. And, yeah. and really, I, I, one of the things I really like is the way you center uh, your own voice at really decisive parts of the book, right? That you clearly are drawing on figures and you do some mm-hmm. conceptual and textual analysis. But I really appreciate you also having that first person, right, that mixed in. And I think that gives the, the book a narrative quality, like a sort of philosophical narrative quality that's uh that's a really good model you know there are a number of books that that do that sort of thing and and i think yours is a really great example of it i appreciate it and and to start you know i wanted to ask you know a really um 
a broad question that is in the intellectual sense, really a personal question, which is about the origins of the project for you. Because first of all, I'm interested in intellectual origins, you know, what motivates you, what kind of questions motivate the project. But also because, as you know, when you write a book, it's not just like you have some ideas and you just write them down. Right. It's a full like investment of your existence right? <laughs> from everything from family to emotion to time and energy. Yeah. It's a, not just a professional undertaking. It's existential. And so in that way, I'm always really interested in hearing authors narrate their way into the book, because it's something that drew you to this project um, that made it possible for you to invest that level of energy and spirit. So, you know, what sorts of, of intellectual, political curiosities drew you to the project and why write it now? Okay. Um, tough questions, but good questions. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out how far to take you back. Um, so we got the time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so I, I think I was, a late developing scholar, if you want to allow me to say that. Um, Mm -hmm. All through college, I was sort of drifting, sort of skating by until my junior year. And I I think I at some point realized I was wasting my time and I I can actually do this thing and I can do it all right. Um, And I noticed that I would get excited whenever philosophy was being um, discussed. So I was in a great books program. And so we read all kinds of material and... uh, it mixed in there was the philosophy and, and I would, I would get animated and, and mad at my peers if they weren't taking it seriously. By the end of my senior year, I was like on fire. I just wanted to learn and read. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's a general background of um, when I got into grad school at Purdue, I was searching around for uh, that, that, that perspective that would allow me with all of my intuitions, with how I saw the world um, to sort of have a position that I could actually believe and stand behind. And I think, you know, the Marxist line didn't do it for me. The phenomenology and existentialism didn't do it for me. Um, I tried some analytic philosophy and that just seemed lifeless. Um, But I backed into, um, Pragmatist philosophy, and at very least, I like their approach to epistemology, the way they talk about problem solving, the ways that they talk about reflective thinking, just how human beings think. I, I liked a lot of that, and uh, I think if you read the book, chapter one is me trying to articulate the sort of basic sort of pragmatist thinking, pragmatist yeah. ideas that I hold on to that that. Mm-hmm. Help me make sense of the world. Um, but this is the part that sort of drove me crazy is that as I would get further into this, if I wanted to address inequalities or oppression, a lot in a lot of cases, I was being pushed into a position where people were saying, well, you just need to read the appropriate Dewey or you need to read this part of Jane Adams. Like all you need to do is read more of the classic thinkers because the answers are there. And something like that didn't sit well with me. And uh, uh-huh. particularly the bit about 
that you should be asking or reading, thinking with these middle class to upper middle class thinkers who are from a privileged class or a privileged racial grouping, asking them how I should be trying or what methods I could use to liberate myself from this oppression. Yeah. Um, and I knew there was there's something else had to be, I needed something else than just go back and read these classic thinkers. And this is about the time I really started to take serious Leonard, Leonard Harris's stuff about insurrection. Mm-hmm. insurrectionist ethics um, he had been a grad stu- i mean sorry he had been a teacher of mine in graduate school and uh, he had been in my ear the whole time trying to get me to think more about uh being somewhat radical or resistance work or struggle mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I, I i will say that in graduate school it didn't make sense to me i didn't understand it um, Interesting. it wasn't until I had a job already. I had um, I had some time where I had a pre a pre ten year sabbatical, and um, I had time to just do research. Mm-hmm. And uh, I ended up on that pre ten year sabbatical um, working on Leonard Harris's work, just trying to understand it and be clear about it, trying to get as absolutely as clear as possible. And as I started to read more and more of it. I realized it wasn't crazy and that there were all kinds of insights with, and the dude is bright as can be. And he's just saying things that lots and lots of people can't hear. And that's probably the moment and the types of things I'm trying to disclose in this book, right? That even myself, mm-hmm. I wasn't hearing it. I heard, I read him as crazy, you know, just weird and off the charts. Um, and there is something to that. Right. And that there are certain things, limitations that block us from even considering certain ideas and certain types of topics. And um, so I started writing articles and I actually got lucky. Uh, An editor grabbed me and said, hey, we should do a special uh, symposium on this. Right. And so in 2013, I was the guest editor to bring together people to write about Leonard Harris's insurrectionist ethics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that helped me think a whole lot about these ideas, um, talking about what exactly are you saying, Leonard Harris, and Leonard actually wrote for it too. Um, and so to be completely honest, I had the idea for a book because I had at some point a bunch of articles and I thought I was just going to bring those articles together and try and publish them as like essays on uh, and huh. it's a, uh-huh. just a, a loose gathering of essays. And uh, the, the editor was like, no, um, <laughs> I want a monograph. I want something that reads, mm-hmm. you know, from, from the beginning to end, like it was thought out. Uh, and so what happens is that I have these ideas and I'm trying to pull them together in such a way that made sense but captured some of the ideas that I already had. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, I mean, rough sketch, that's how the book came about was me trying to wrestle with some of my early pragmatic understandings of the way the world works and this insurrectionist ethics that calls for people to disavow certain types of authority and basic norms that are going to come off as strange and crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that's going to make people uncomfortable, that's going to make things unresolved. Um, and so the book is me trying to clearly articulate exactly those ideas. And um, yeah. Yeah, it's totally interesting. You know, I mean, I always find these, these in, you know, these podcast conversations, the origins of projects really interesting just because, you know, it's always the backdrop that, that doesn't find its way into the book or maybe it's a little bit in a, an acknowledgement or something. But, you know, a, a real common thing that common, two really common things that you just talked about, I think are really int- important, the slow boil from graduate school. There's something about the fog of graduate school. I have my own version of it. Podcast, <laughs> so I won't go into it. But, you know, it's just like five, six, seven years later, I was like, so maybe like the pestering I got in the hallway by, you know, Robert Bernasconi, well, there was something there, right? Yeah. It wasn't just haranguing me. Yeah, um, but also that, you know, this, those little things like whether it's a, 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 a panel at a conference or an editorial project that forces you to do that stuff of listening and reading and thinking, mm-hmm. uh, generating ideas. Because I think especially with that kind of editing that you're talking about for the symposium, um, you know, uh, in gathering people together to, to write and talk about this stuff, we do tend to think of that as sort of pure gratuitous labor where you just, <laughs> and it, a lot of it is, right? You're doing like, you know, whether it's the email writing and the following up 80 times for the one person who doesn't respond, I'm thinking about, I need to respond to an email after this. Um, but, uh, you know, and then, you know, editing, if it's a written symposium or making sure everybody has food, if it's in person, but there's often that other side that you're talking about that, that moment where it's like, but there are also ideas flowing through this. So I love, I love that that was like, you know, uh, an outgrowth of it. And you never know editors, they do, they do say things like, like, I don't want the project you just said, how about you do this other thing? And it ends up being very good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. Um, so let me ask you about the title, if I can. Mm-hmm. And you've spoken a little bit about it in, in reference to, you know, insurrectionist ethics. But it's such an interesting title, you know, ethics and, and insurrection. I want to also ask you about the subtitle in, in a minute. But mm-hmm. um, it's a great title, ethics and insurrection. You know, it. You know, insurrection. I mean, aside from the January sixth thing, right? Insurrection is the, a very intense kind of term. Right. In the sense of it doesn't have the well-worn thing about like rebellion or resistance or revolution. So it's a really for me like caught my eye. It's like insurrection. Like we we often don't talk about resistance and and revolution in those terms. And so that was interesting. And you attach to that this word ethics, right? Ethics and insurrection. Mm So I wanted to sort of ask you to walk through that title, what you have in mind with it, maybe starting with insurrection. Right. And what when you attach ethics to this rather than politics, what that does to insurrection. Because if you talk about insurrection, you know, just mention the word, I think people think of a political movement, political organization. Ethics is a different resonance, but is also, of course, deeply related to politics. So I'm curious both about both those terms and what it means to pair them, right? Mm -hmm. That and part, ethics and insurrection. Like what, what's going on with that? And how does it make the book work? Okay. So the first thing I'll admit is that, uh, I mean, I think I worked hand in hand with uh, my editor, Liza Thompson, coming up with both. Um, I think my, 
I really wanted to title the book uh, Bold Comportment, a, for, a foray into insurrectionist ethics. And she, she, she laughed at me. I mean, she's like, would anyone know what this book is about at all, right? It, it, they would I have, like Bold Comportment, but marketers, yeah. I, get right. it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I still like the title. But um, she wanted me to be able to indicate to the reader these are the sorts of things that are going to be within this text. And uh, the more I thought about it, the more I thought I should try and scale down the project from being all inclusive of something like politics and ethics and epistemology and philosophy and life to let's try and do ethics. Um, mm -hmm. And particularly, I, I wanted to talk about the types of things. And, and so notice the bold comportment like uh, I like the word comportment because it, it talks about demeanor, the way you hold yourself, and that's bodily as well as just the way you act, right? And and so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how slumped are your shoulders or how upright you stand or how when you enunciate, are you bold in your enunci enunciation? Um, you know, these sorts of things, um, I think in many cases are and can be um influenced by outside social pressures, right? By oppression, yeah. by um, certain types of things that limit us, that hold us, that keep us within certain boundaries. And so um, part of what I wanted to do in the book is, I mean, is really amplify and talk seriously about Leonard Harris's insurrectionist ethics. And so he, this, I mean, in large part, what I'm doing is showing my my debt to Leonard Harris. I mean, he had this notion of an insurrectionist ethics uh, 20 years ago. You know, it's, it's been a while. Mm -hmm. um, and most people scratch their head even at the, the idea of it, right? And so this is what I was trying to do is make it so that it makes sense and that you can get your, your mind around it. And it's not, well, maybe it is crazy by certain standards, right? And so... Mm -hmm. um, and if you're thinking about changing society or our interpersonal relationships, we might really have to do something to change from the certain basic background assumptions, the certain norms that we take for granted. And so mm -hmm. um, the bit about ethics, um, so so let me, let, me, let me not get too fast here. With insurrection, I guess I, I, first I'm doing I'm, I'm trying to clearly undertake Harris's charge and talk about insurrectionist ethics. But by insurrection, it's, insurrection, I mean something like the idea that we're going to have to disavow, reject, or rebel against uh, certain types of norms, certain types of authority, certain types of institutions. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to counter or enter counteract certain types of uh, oppression. Mm -hmm. If you really want to change the structures of society, that we might have to be rebellious to certain types of yeah. authority. And that's what I really wanted to get across, especially if you're one of these oppressed groups. Um, I think part of my frustration was that I was being told to be civil. I was being told to sure. read the right things and say it in a more compelling way. And that would be mm -hmm. more effective than you getting angry or you being tenacious or you pressuring me to do this or that. 
Um, And I wanted to, at very least, say that something like an insurrectionist character trait might, in certain cases, be virtuous or a good thing, something that we actually might uh, Mm -hmm. give approbation to or, you know, we uh, give approval to. Yeah, so, um, I mean, it's, you know, when I was reading the book, a thing that kept sort of floating in my head, I haven't worked in this area myself uh, rigorously and certainly haven't thought uh, hard about it in in a number of years, but the difference between sort of ethics and insurrection and uh, communicative ethics, Mm -hmm. right, which is this sort of, I mean, it's a European, you know, out of the critical theory tradition. Yeah notion of you know how you how you solve social problems in a, in a democratic fashion right is yeah. to undertake that antagonism or agon in terms of communicative uh, norms mm-hmm. but what's so interesting about the way you you undertake this notion of insurrection is as you said is disavowing the very norms that might make that sort of communicative space which is an ideal space i mean i don't yeah. know where this exists we're in the united states it's sure as fuck <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's always been like increasingly like strange as a thing to evoke, yeah. but it, it, you know, thinking about even just how you, how we configure like democratic space in terms of insurrection versus like uh, sort of communicative yeah. uh, openness or exchange or mm-hmm. vulnerability or all these sorts of things that strike me as a kind of um, not even strike me, but are clearly to me idealized space. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas insurrection is is something that's that's been undertaken, you know, since since the first, you know, rebellion on a on a slave plantation, or, you yeah. know, first rebellion of of you know hungry poor people, you know, yeah. um, you know anywhere. And so, so it is interesting to think about that in a moment where, as you said, you were being sort of called to this notion of civility, and our politics are always being called to this sort of civility and the civility is always juxtaposed to you know some sort of um some sort of nihilism yeah right it's it's, as either civility or nihilism this offers a very different kind of thing why ethics instead of politics do you think yeah um i i think no i do know that uh for me to have a coherent thread to try and pull through the book um something that made sense that didn't just seem like something tacked on at the end. Mm-hmm. I wanted to keep it um, to, to that sort of ethics, but ethics in the sense I wanted to talk about the types of things that hold us back from considering that hold us back from even thinking about the possibilities of, um, and just saying it that way, I, I think of um, things that I, I remember reading in Foucault, Right. There's certain types of things that uh, set the very background basics of what we believe we can actually do in the world. Uh, yeah. Things that are uh, acceptable to ourselves mm-hmm. um, that we can allow ourselves to engage in this or that. And uh, these also are corporeal types of worries and concerns. And these are things that uh, I, I do think that lead us into places where we think you either have, and, and this is another part of the book that we have these awful false dichotomies that we are set with, you know, you're either, you either love and you have compassion or you're a crazy, 
uh, violent insurrectionist, yeah. and it, yeah. or you're a, you truly believe, or you're a skeptic. Mm. Which one are you, right? And uh, lots of people, you know, I have faith, or it, and I can't be a skeptic, so you have to have faith in something, yeah. um, and these sorts of dichotomies, I think, um, are, are some of the things that uh, I, I want to step away from or to mm -hmm. disavow. I, I don't want to take these all as uh, necessary things or things that have to be. Uh, and so part of the struggle, part of the rebellion is to rethink what we're doing. And do we have to start there? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, you know, I like that about, about the emphasis on ethics is exactly what you're saying, the way it, it forces us to engage the political imagination as imagination, mm -hmm. right? What we imagine is both possible and permissible, which ethics is about both possible and permissible. Yeah. Um, and I think the book, I, I think the book absolutely does that. So, Thank you. Um, you know, in that way, I mean, in that way, and I know, I mean, it sort of blends with the next question I have for you, but in that way, I think one of the aims of, of pragmatism and, and of philosophy in general, right. Is, 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 is recasting what it means to even ask questions, right? To ask better questions or to push the boundaries of question asking. Mm -hmm. I think this notion of insurrection and, and placing it in relation to ethics really does that because it focuses on focuses us on a sense of values and possibility mm -hmm. and, and the way our imagination can be so constrained by that. Yeah. And I wanted to, you know, I think that maybe folds into this question about the subtitle. The subtitle is A Pragmatism for the Oppressed. Um, I'm interested if that's, you know, an evocation of pedagogy of the oppressed, you know, if, if you know, and if, yeah. if anything about that, because it's, but it, as a subtitle, it's fantastic. I actually thought I, I would have guessed that that would have been the title of the book, yeah. right? Yeah. This is certainly eye grabbing, but, uh, yeah. so is insurrection. <laughs> yeah. But, um, I'm interested just to hear you talk through that phrase, right? Right. The oppressed. Right, the second half of the subtitle mm -hmm. obviously modifies this notion of pragmatism. Yeah. So I'm curious how that modification works for you. Right. What is pragmatism for you in terms of philosophical thinking? You've spoken a bit to it, but just yeah, to focus yeah. that. Uh, and how does bringing pragmatism as a mode of philosophical thinking that you're engaged in, that mm -hmm. you're interested in, how in bringing it in contact with the experience of the oppressed, how do you think that shifts? the meaning of pragmatism as a philosophical method. Okay. Um, so first I, I, I would admit that the, the subtitle comes from one of the reviewers of the book. Um, it was one of the comments that the reviewer actually put in there. And then it turns out it was one of the lines that was taken for the back of the book later. And so um, it's Dwayne, Tun Dwayne Tunstall. Um, uh, he had this phrase, right? He has a, he has offering us a pragmatism for the oppressed and, uh, Liza and I both sort of stopped at that. And she's like, that's, that's a great phrase. And we should definitely use that somewhere in the title. And, uh, it does. By the way, that's, that, that's, a, that's a manuscript reviewer's dream. <laughs> <laughs> the reality is no one ever does what you say. Or recommend right. the dream is that you have a phrase that they're like, "Hey, that's really helpful." Yeah, anyway. no, that's that's the thing that actually, yeah, it was nabbed and used as the subtitle. Uh, 
I think my addition was I we definitely have to have a not the and uh, ah. but it was yeah it, I, I liked the way that Dwayne had read my work and um, to pitch it in this way that it's a pragmatism that actually speaks to or talks to takes consideration for the oppressed um, I, I thought that was nice and yes it does call out um, the frere um, now the the other question you're asking is like so just talking about pragmatism and, and how it's modified by by addressing the oppressed pragmatism has always been um, the term pragmatism has been uh, a troubled term for me and I think it's it's yeah. really a hard one to define there's uh, different ways to be a pragmatist. There are different types of pragmatists. Uh, and so for large parts of my career, I was trying to not use the term at all. Interesting. But what I found was when I was doing work that, and this is the sort of marketing thing, and the editors will push you, like you need to uh -huh. declare where you're coming from or who you're speaking to and the types of groups of people who are going to read your material. Who are they? And... Um, the easiest way to grab into that is the, the pragmatist term. Um, so the pragmatist line that I tend to, I mean, hold on to or use is the stuff you get out of William James and John Dewey and to a latter extent, uh, Elaine Locke now. Uh, but the idea is something about there's a naturalism, there's a way of experimental thinking and problem solving um, that human beings are fallible agents, that we get things wrong, but we can experiment and try to have better results or better ways and methods of resolving problems. Mm -hmm. um, and there's something about that approach to life and problem solving I really like. I like actually having something like that uh, in the background. Now, it does come potentially with problems. And at the end of the first chapter, I try and drop some of those problems that might be lurking there, like, like expansionism and uh, indigenous removal and buying into race and ethnic hierarchies and things of this sort. Um, I think we should be aware of that and we should critique those things. Mm -hmm. um, but can I still use some of these ideas? I think so. Mm -hmm. And so um, pragmatism, pulling out the bits that I want or the types of methodologies or the ways of approaching knowledge creation, I think there's something there to be had, particularly if you take into account that there are oppressed groups and people who may need other things or who might start with differing problems. Mm -hmm. um, and so part of the book is to acknowledge that we don't all start at the same place, that there are certain groups of people who have been withheld from certain types of privileges and opportunities. And uh, just to tell them to read, you know, the certain thinker and get them right. I don't know if that's really going to liberate anybody. Yeah. Um, and so um, thinking about pragmatism for the oppressed, I really am trying to allow for different voices to step in and to, to say their piece, to say what bothers them, um, mm -hmm. to say that maybe you're not impressed with the United States or what we hold up as freedom and democracy. 
um, that we can't imagine better, right? These sorts of questions, I think, become more and more serious and uh, real. So let me ask, you know, talking about pragmatism, um, ask you about John Dewey's work, which is, is, you know, a huge part of the book, right? Um, not, as you say, as like a figure who, we, you know, who you lean on or who's going to liberate us. I like, you know, I like that characterization, like getting a particular thinker right is not going to liberate us. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, rest in peace, all the single figure <laughs> studies I've written, but yeah, anyway, <laughs> no, but, but seriously, I, uh, uh, you know, I think that's really interesting as a way, you know, what you were just saying as, as a way of talking about how to work with a tradition like pragmatism. And so I wanted to ask then also about John Dewey in, in particular, who is, as far as I can tell has in terms of the pragmatist really has like the central, um, is the central figure you're engaging with. And you, you note this at the outset. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask you just about your encounter with Dewey's work, you know, both the origins of it. I mean, you've spoken a bit about that and, mm-hmm. you know, in how you would characterize your own creative engagement with that work and how it expands on the boundaries of Dewey and pragmatism. I mean, I, I know that it isn't the aim of the book, but one of the effects of the book is for somebody who works on Dewey or works on pragmatism, they're going to have to take this, boundary push that you that you do in the book seriously i mean i do think if i was a dewey scholar and i read this book i would have to respond or think about dewey in some fundamentally different way so i'm sort of curious like where what drew you to dewey and what drew you out and how do you see how would you characterize that critical relationship yeah uh, thanks for the question um yeah trying to remember I, I think my initial like when i got excited i think i read individualism old and new it's a little thin volume but what it was capturing for me were a lot of the critiques and concerns about our society that marxists raise without throwing around marxist terminology yeah and take that for what it is as a younger person that was like, oh, so I can still hold these views about, you know, freedom and liberty and democracy mm-hmm. and criticize it at the same time and talk about experimentalism and trying to change things for the better. And if you read it closely, talking about to being more social and egalitarian, um, mm-hmm. that, that I, I actually was attached to these ideas and I, I liked the way he sort of set that. And so that got me reading more. And uh-huh. uh, I read his ethics. I read him on human nature and conduct. Um, I read a bunch of Dewey. But it's, it's, it's hard going. If you haven't read a lot of Dewey, it's kind of dry. But um, as far as systematic and plodding along and clearly articulating a thought that I thought was defensible, um, yeah, I mean, I ended up writing a dissertation on it because it just seemed like something I could defend. And it finally mm-hmm. gave me sort of uh, somewhere to stand. Sure. And um, it was it was the place that I thought I could defend this. And uh, I did. Um, mm-hmm. Now, I don't think I was ever recognized as a Dewey scholar. Um, 
in the circles that I travel in, but I do like Dewey a lot. Um, but as far as my, my creative engagement with Dewey, I think the things that I had to get away from was the idea, well, I had to acknowledge for myself that there are certain parts of Dewey that don't acknowledge the, uh, the uglier bits of the United States. Mm-hmm. They don't seem to take, um, <clears throat> at least they don't forefront the ideas of indigenous removal or that maybe our industrialized lives are built upon chattel slavery or that um, maybe that we are the empire, right? That we're engaged yeah. in imperialism, right? These, some of these things, yeah. you can read the material and just think, right, we're doing democracy and freedom, right? And there's, we're just, we just got to get it right. Um, and I, I think there's certain bits you have to stop and wonder about and think about very seriously. Am I importing? Am I assuming too much, right? That, that these mm-hmm. ideas uh, might come with, racial hierarchy or classist sort of understandings of things um, mm-hmm. that, that we actually, so I'm not saying that do is necessarily classist or racist, but I'm saying that a lot of the things that are going on, particularly at the time period or what was seen as just sort of de rigueur, like th- this is just normal mm-hmm. might not be acceptable or might be something we should question very seriously. And so that's the sort of thing I'm trying to do is get people. Uh-huh. It's not just that we need to, you know, read it better and, and reenact this American ideal to perfection mm-hmm. uh, because the way it's been considered and the way it's been tried out might not be the best way. Sure. Uh, and so that's what I'm trying to do with Dewey. And there might be this dance of using some of it and critiquing it at the same time, but yeah, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, hearing you talk about it, I I think about, I mean, I do this in my own research and, and writing, you know, as part of my, my writerly and thinking process, but I also try to get students to do it in the classroom, which is no matter who we're reading, track the use of the, the second person plural, we, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and, and where does that land and where does it not land? And just because it might land for you, right. right <laughs> yeah. For whom would it not land? Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and it can lead us to really uh, difficult spaces, you know? Um, yeah. And, uh, but those difficult spaces, right. Are exactly difficult because they show how fraught and fractured that exact world is that, that is supposedly ours, right? Right. I mean, that, I mean, to be honest, not to be honest, but to to just say it. I mean, that's what I like about insurrection, is it just cuts this line through the two letters W and E, right? There is no we. <laughs> yet the insurrection is only possible. Insurrectionist thinking is only possible if we're working in relation to a we. You yeah. know, and it's yeah. interesting to hear you say then, you know, it's like it's a dance with Dewey. It's like the, the things that you think are productive and can be transformed. And then the things that are just like, you know, you've really just erased an entire like group of people off the earth. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
I mean, I do. And I also think, you know, scholarship struggles with that so much because we tend to be Manichaean about like, who are the good guys, who are the bad guys. Exactly. God forbid you choose a good guy because they're always a bad guy too. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it could be painful to learn that. I mean, I I just, you know, not to to have too much of a digression about myself, but, you know, I was almost done with this book on James Baldwin and he kept talking about the, this, um, you know, this notion of, of, you know, a right to place and home because he says, you know, my ancestors, you know, their blood is in this land. They've worked this land. Yeah. And I was sharing it and someone just said, you know, how does that, you know, relation to land and home sound if you're indigenous? Yeah. I was like, okay, and then we pause this project, right? Yeah. Because it fractured. It wasn't a we, right? I'm, I'm not African-American, yeah. but yeah. I, I'm just a commentator. So, yeah. you know, engaging Baldwin's we, right? It was that fracture, a sort of insurrectionist comment right off yeah. to the side. And um, I think finding ways to make those productive um moments rather than defensive moments or dismissive moments is key do you think there's something about pragmatism that actually enables that you know so so many schools of thought really are about all these previous dudes are wrong and (laughs) but pragmatism does have a different character for certainly for some readers and writers of pragmatism do you think there is something about pragmatism that makes a a you know as you put it like a dance possible rather than a you're out of the party. Right? Yeah. So, so the, the bits that are helpful here are, I would say um, that there's a fallibilism. There's a strong sense that we could always be wrong or it can always be revised and made better. Yeah. Uh, additionally, they tend to be and it, it. And if there aren't all, then I would say that I side with those pragmatists that are pluralists. Um, so they at, at least acknowledge that there are going to be different perspectives, uh, that there are going to be different ways of understanding how things are. Um, and so having those as sort of key qualities or central tenets, I think, opens it up to this idea of revision, this idea that we could alter and change this thing. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't have to hold on to everything. And actually, I mean, Dewey's, he's in print saying, each generation has to recreate its own values and check out and throw away the dead wood. Right. And these uh-huh. sorts of things, um, I just nod along like, yeah, that seems right. Yeah. That's a, a rare feature of traditions. You know, my own tradition that I've worked out of um, in so many different ways is phenomenology, which is really in that way, a similar kind of call, you know, the, the famous, early phenomenology thing of back to the things themselves, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, you know, nothing is settled. We always have to come back to lived experience and you're sort of identifying this similar kind of imperative to, of non-permanence and engagement with change and diversity, yeah. um, which ought to be philosophically productive, but it's often thought of as, as a sort of, um, you know, improvised explosive device at a conference or something, yeah. right? Yeah. Rather than a, like, how do how does how does the deadwood being thrown out actually revitalize the forest? Exactly. Yeah. So speaking of, of of influences, I mean, you've said a lot, so maybe there's not that much more to say. But I did just want to sort of pause and and name this, right? I wanted to ask you about the influence of Leonard Harris Harris's thinking. Obviously, it's the title itself is is so deeply uh, indebted to Harris's work. Um, so I want to ask you to talk a little bit about about his relationship to your work and your relationship 
um, to his ideas and how you think of, of yourself as either transforming them or extending them or elaborating them. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I love that. I know you've also done editing work with him yeah. on, on his papers. Um, I mean, he's such an important thinker, but in terms of the American philosophical imagination, I think still just doesn't have the prominence it deserves. And so yeah. I, I did want to say like, you know, I, I would love to have a podcast with the two of you about the collected papers mm-hmm. because I think he's super important. But I also think part of being super important is not just collecting papers, but having books and articles that actually work creatively, politically, ethically with ideas, yeah. which this ethics, ethics and insurrection absolutely does. So I wanted to just sort of o- openly ask you to talk about your re- relationship of this book to Leonard Harris's work and how you would characterize that relationship. Yeah, so um, it is... Somewhere, I think I put that the book was motivated by Harris, <laughs> and and yeah. in, in many cases, I mean, it, just to be blunt, it, it was. Um, in, in one sense, you know, circa 2013 and beyond, I was thinking a lot about what he was up to and finding things that I was like, "Wow, that's clever," or. He's actually doing things in a way that allow me to talk about race without this or this that I don't like. And so the, the more I read, the more I was like, no, he's doing a lot of good work. But he writes in such a fashion that lots of people don't get it or they don't slog all the way through to the end to get the punchline. Um, and yeah, so... He, I keep finding pearls of wisdom over and over again. And I, I think in the book, I, I set out to, I was going to stake my claim and, and say what I thought, I, where I disagreed with Harris. And I don't know if I ever got there. I think the more I read, the more I thought about it, I, I think I was won over. I think uh, I'm just trying to, okay. So the, the bit I would say, if, if anything that dis- distinguishes my view from his, is I think I'm not as pessimistic. I still sort of have, uh, some idea that things could be better. Um, but he has his days, and in certain articles, he, he says such things. Um, but I don't think that my view is that drastically different um, than Harris's, but um, I shouldn't speak for him. Now, the book you're talking. I like that. I like that you're saying he basically evaded uh, some sort of uh, intellectual parasite for for at least 120 pages. Yeah, he did. <laughs> <laughs> I, could, I couldn't find anything. Good job. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but I I edited a volume of his papers called A Philosophy of Struggle: The Leonard Harris Reader, and um, you know one of the, one of the things I just said is that it's really dense and chock full of insights. And then he also writes with metaphors and allegory half the time. And so you have to be following closely and read, reread and think about it Mm -hmm. and then read some more. Um, And the editors, they saw this and they saw that when we got reviews back, everyone's like, publish this stuff now. We need it. Um, Mm -hmm. But the editor was like, this is dense. This is tough. Uh, I want you to write um, like a a small abstract for each piece. Mm-hmm. And that was some of the hardest work I've ever done, uh, was, yeah. <laughs> was trying to distill this, this sort of work to one digestible paragraph or two. Um, yeah. 
And I work, and I, I will say this, I worked closely with Harris to do this. And so it was one of the most rich experiences of my life just to try and work through the work, try and put it down into this very distilled way that, that you know, people could actually understand um, and then work with Harris and he could critique me like, that's not what I mean. That's, that's, no, don't say it like that. Don't say that. And, um, that's, that's a humbling uh, It was amazing. I, I, I'm, I'm sure. Um, and so I think I grew intellectually, you know, exponentially through that sort of experience. And so, um, again, I don't think I disagree with him. I mean, as far as I know, um, mm-hmm. in, in ways that I'm just like, oh, I don't believe that. Um, the, the thing I do is I think I'm doing, uh, I think my stuff is, is lighter than his. That's all. <laughs> yes. Um, that's, that's, that's really interesting. Um, and, uh, I'm, I'm sure you'll have uh, many years of conversation with him about this book for, for that reason. Um, let me ask you about some, uh, a few of your chapters, um, yeah. starting with the opening chapter, you know, the, the title of the opening chapter has this phrase, thoroughly disenchanted universe, which I really love that phrase. I thought it was really compelling. I thought what you did with it was, is really interesting. Um, as a as a motif and really orientation across the book, so I just want to ask you to really take us through that phrase, thoroughly disenchanted universe. Um, you know, sort of why why that phrase? You know, what do you mean by it? And 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 how do you think it it's one of the sort of pillars that the if it is, if I read it correctly, is one of the pillars of the book that the book stands on is this notion of a thoroughly disenchanted universe. Yeah. Um... So it's one of those moments where it just falls into your lap, right? So uh, I was teaching a junior IS, um, so a junior independent study seminar. And one of my students was presenting on animal ethics or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And he was using this Bernard Williams piece. And this was just lodged in there. Um and I, I remember him, him reading something and then I had run across it in the page and I remember just thinking and stopping and rereading it like, wow, that is like deep and I love it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so a thoroughly disenchanted universe. Um, I mean, there, if you've read around... Weber talks about something like this. Um, but that's not where I was pointing. I was pointing to Bernard Williams, and then I had read Sylvia Winter talk about disenchanting um, things. And mm-hmm. um, I, I liked those two in the connection that they were both using these ideas um, that maybe we needed to disenchant more or some ideas. Um it also taps into this idea. So Leonard Harris has this idea of a amoral universe, um, and you, you can find it in Richard Rorty as well. Um, the idea that we do away with this idea that there's a teleology that's directing things or some mm-hmm. wise agent, some divine agent, supernatural agent that is directing things or has directed things, mm-hmm. um, that it all makes sense that we're all going someplace that it's all going to make sense in the end. 
Um, that's something that I did not want to take on as a presupposition. Um, and so there's, there's some of the work throughout the book be trying to um, start without that and see what I could do. And um, I just thought this, this quote from Williams was just too good to pass up. Uh, a thoroughly disenchanted universe. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, it was just one yeah, of those. It is a really interesting, you know, you, you mentioned Harris's, you know, that, that your own thinking in relation to Harris is maybe less pessimistic. But it is interesting to think about you know, what's the relationship of something like a thoroughly disenchanted universe to something like, or an amoral universe, as you, as uh -huh. you said, uh -huh. you know, quoting Harris, what's the relationship of that to pessimism? Because pessimism is so much about sort of affect, right? Whereas, yeah. you know, when you talk about a disenchanted universe, especially adding that modifier of thoroughly, yeah. right, it's an ontological claim, yeah. right? Of, of this is the structure of our, our being, right? Yeah. It's not a, it's not a, um, you know, giving up or falling into despair or this, these kinds of nihilism, nihilistic versions of pessimism. Yeah. 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 No, that seems fair. Um, yeah. And, and so there's, there's a lot that I'm trying to do. And it's, it's also in Harris's work where it's, it's trying to talk about us as organic beings struggling in the world. And we don't have these divine powers to discern everything that has happened exactly as it is. Um, we, we can do our best and we can try mm -hmm. and experiment and do better. Um, mm -hmm. And that's what we have. And that's, yeah. that's where I start. And I think that's, that's what I'm trying to capture. Um, and that might, and I know lots of philosophers don't like that idea they don't like that we can't know everything or that we can't start yeah, with yeah, yeah. Uh, clarity and distinctness right and know it's true sure. uh, but that's where i start and i you know i i have a deep affection for for work that closes off um our escape routes from really difficult <laughs> questions and i think that that does it closes off an escape route of of you know the very uh hidden ways teleology works through like hope and vision and mm -hmm. promise and these kinds of democratic sort of um, values and tropes. Yeah. And so I, I like those moments of closing. I'm not a particularly pessimistic writer or, or thinker mm -hmm. even, but uh, I think we have to think about pessimism, optimism, or whatever the, the dualism is um, without escape routes. So right. I want to ask you maybe about in the fourth chapter, another escape route that you mm -hmm. close off, which is, um, in the fourth chapter, you know, and you know, I told you it's probably my favorite chapter in the book, um, where you draw the distinction, which you say is overdrawn a bit, right? Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. sometimes we not sometimes we usually overdraw distinctions in order to make a point. But you draw this distinction between insurrection and empathy, and mm -hmm. I think empathy is so often one of these escape routes. Right of, yeah. of like, well, if we could achieve some kind of empathy, right, then we've fundamentally changed intersubjective life right? right we've connected to maybe some form of humanism that's around affect and connection right and with this notion of insurrection you're trying to sort of break off from empathy and so i wanted to ask you just to talk a little bit about that insurrection empathy conversation both how it changes our sense of of human relations or intersubjectivity mm -hmm. 
as well as if you want to comment on this, you don't have to, but you know, what I think is often a parallel discussion, um, certainly historically 1968 and after of uh, humanism and anti-humanism. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I guess I would characterize it more as not that I'm trying to distance myself from empathy, um, that I am trying to show that this is a false dichotomy um, mm-hmm. that, that we are typically run into and we're compelled, strongly compelled, that you definitely want to do this empathy thing. Insurrection only gets us, you know, chaos and blood. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I'm trying to do is, is show that we shouldn't limit ourselves to only this sort of branch that I'm calling empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and so, so some of my frustration, the clearest cases of my frustration, um, I wrote a paper on anger, um, arguing against Martha Nussbaum's, uh, she, she has a whole line about, you know, we need to get over anger and anger mm-hmm. is just a vestige of bygone days and it doesn't help anything. And we should just do compassion. Uh, turn the other cheek. And she talks about Martin Luther King. Uh, we should be more like him, apparently. Um, this sort of thing drove me nuts. And I was... Why do they always make King into that moment? Sorry. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Even academics do it. It's in every editorial, yeah. you know, yeah. by some moderate or conservative That's in, right. in, in uh, January. Sorry, not yeah, to cut yeah, you yeah. off. But I was like, why King? Like, yeah. The poor yeah. guy. I mean, he so, was angry and pessimistic, too. <laughs> so there was that. And then and then there's another moment, um, different, different scholar. Um, Shannon Sullivan uh, writes... Um, something like there's positive affect and negative affect. Positive affect lifts people up. Negative affect, you know, drops people down or, or robs them of life force or soul or mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. And so anger would be one of the negatives and joy and happiness and love would be the, sort of the stuff that lifts up. Mm-hmm. And so if we want to approach white racists, skinheads and white supremacists we shouldn't be using negative affect we should only be using positive affect to change to alter the white supremacist and so i'm trying to map this sort of dichotomy onto my thing you're either an insurrectionist or you're going to buy into empathy love compassion and i started to look around and it seemed like a a dichotomy that we tend to fall people into, right? You're either on the empathy mm-hmm. side or you're on the insurrectionist side. Um, and what I hoped to accomplish in the chapter is that it's it seems strange that we would alter, that we would say that you can only use this half or only these types of uh, emotions or this type of affect towards mm-hmm. people, particularly those who are your oppressors. Mm-hmm. Um and what I, I try to end that chapter by by showing in Martin Luther King that he's like, no, we are using anger. We were angry. We are angry. Mm-hmm. And we're using it directed towards certain ends. Right? That I can love humanity. I can love people generally. But I can also do these other things that try and coerce you into changing. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I... It's a deep frustration that I have, and and I think mm-hmm. that I I think there is a way that you 
don't have to fall into either one of those camps, that what you want to do is allow that people can use both types of effect, the positive yeah. and the negative, that, that I can love people and that I can be tenacious and angry too. Mm-hmm. No, I like that. I Like I said, probably my favorite uh, chapter of the book, and I think for the reasons you just said, is thinking with real nuance around you know, cutting off that easy pass, path of empathy, you know, or, or positive affect, right? Yeah. And thinking about these, these affects and these relationships between ways of having political and, and moral bearing. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just how, you know, positive affect, how many times have we been met with positive affect and it's made us angry, right? <laughs> like anyone who takes the moral high ground around me, I'm like, hey, what the hell? <laughs> you know? So, so that's yeah. a hard distinction, even just yeah. uh, in experience uh, to find <laughs> playing out. Yeah. So let me ask about the concluding chapter, um, which cool. draws on on Harris's characterizations of uh, characterization of traditions as mm-hmm. inventions. Now, I have to say, I mean, part of why I'm asking this is I myself am um, sort of uh, obsessively come back to notions of, of what traditions are, what role they play in, in moral life and, and, and political life and liberation struggle and so forth. So, you know, I'm really interested in, in just hearing you talk about, you know, why, why move in the concluding chapter to this question of tradition, right? As it's non-natural, it's open to transformation, Mm-hmm. Right. And what mm-hmm. that transformation is in the name of is in some ways the, the, the crux of our political and, and ethical life. Um, and one of the ways you sort of frame it, um, and it's a very suggestive chapter. So but but one of the framings is this engagement with skepticism in contrast to dogmatism. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious just to hear you talk about like why conclude with this notion of tradition and what you understand in a pragmatic context pragmatic thinking context, the role of skepticism, because, I mean, you've in some ways spoken, you know, again and again about skepticism as, as, as breaking these habits and breaking these conventions and settled ideas in the name of an insurrection, uh, insurrectionist ethics. But skepticism is of course, a very old term in, in, in philosophy. And so bringing it back in relation to dogmatism and that contrast in relation to tradition, I just thought was super fascinating. And it just, it left me with sort of like, where, where does this take us? But we can talk about that in a minute, but yeah. I'm interested in why tradition and how you think skepticism contrasted with dogmatism changes our relationship to tradition. Okay. Um, complex question. So I would back up a little bit and say that I start that, um, with a passage and ideas from Toni Morrison, who, who I've been reading a whole lot lately and has me floored over and over again. Um, so in the piece called Grendel and His Mother, Toni Morrison has this sort of distinction that she sets up. It's a dichotomy. She says that we find ourselves, we have this, this dilemma. Either we side with the shaper or we side with the dragon. The shaper is a poet who has glorious, beautiful words, who lulls us into having faith and believing in things, even though we know they're all lies. Um, so either on one side you have faith, or on the other side you have extreme skepticism, you have cynicism, you have the dragon. 
right? Who only cares about themselves and sitting on a pot of gold for themselves again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, where? So, so, I, I love the imagery, but what is it capturing? What I think it's capturing, what I'm hoping it captures, is this idea that either you got to have faith that we're on the path or there's a telos or we're, we're heading in the right direction or you're a skeptic, you're a cynical person, you don't believe and you're just like the dragons, just hoarding money. Mm-hmm. Um, but okay, so so that's, that's where I started and I have this background where I studied ancient Greek philosophy. And so the idea of skeptics and Stoics was also right there in my head. And I use those as vehicles to talk about, to extend the the ends of these, this dichotomy. Mm -hmm. And so um, the skeptics run you down a certain path and the Stoics run you down another path. And I, and I try to explain why I think both of them are kind of, they, they end in places you don't want to be, or at least I don't want to be. And, um, Again, this is the this is a thing where I'm trying to say we don't have to be trapped into these dichotomies, right? There might be an alternative yeah. way out, and the way out, according to me, is to think more about certain types of tradition, not every tradition, but certain types of progressive traditions that can be modified and changed over time. That you mm-hmm. can give faith to something like a tradition or to certain ideals and values and norms doesn't mean that they're sacrosanct, that they have to stay forever or that they're God-given. It's just these are certain types of values that we actually hold on to or that we think mm-hmm. are worthwhile for now. Mm-hmm. Um, that That's the sort of thing I think if we're going to insurrect the we, whoever's involved in that, are going to have to have some notion, some group, some norms, some tradition that they want to persist. Uh, and, and so that's where I'm where I'm going in that chapter. And and notice this is me gesturing. Uh, I don't have the answers. I don't pretend to, sure. to know exactly what those things should look like. But I'm thinking if we want a way out, if we want something different, then we have to do that work of binding together, coming up with new ideas. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to put our faith into something and go forward. I like that. Thank you. That was fantastic. Um, let me ask you sort of by way of wrapping up, um, to ask you first about, uh, readers, you know, and, you know, we write books, um, obviously there's something we're trying to provoke in people or convince them of, but also if we're not, uh, authoritarian, we understand that the nature of reading is that, that, um, you know, we know we don't control the reader, the reader takes from it not just anything they want, but they, 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 they take so many, they can take so many different things from it. Um, but at the same time, we want them to we want readers to walk away from the book in some kind of way. The way I put it is, is, you know, the way our sensibilities are changed by an encounter with the text, right? Um, that a really great book, changes the way you look and feel and maybe the way you walk right Uh and Uh um you know there are a few novels that i have read over the last handful of years where i felt like for two weeks afterwards like i felt like i inhabited a universe of people who had read the farming of bones and there was everybody else right it's just like changed this the way i moved in the world 
Um, and so if we fantasize that, like, like what, how do, would we like our readers to move differently in the world, rather, whether as thinkers or as people? And what for you, like, what, how do you want people to walk differently and walk after this book? Yeah. So I thought about this question a lot. Um, I, I think what I would say is, like the stories I was telling earlier about when I was a younger scholar and I was looking for something that would help me to criticize positions to, to problematize the world as I see it from my perspective, from a, from a person of color, from an oppressed background. Um, I hope that my book offers something that would allow people to think about to be able to come up with new terms, concepts, ideas, methodologies that would help. Um, in that sense, I mean, I'm hoping I'm opening doors, uh, offering sharper knives. Um, Leonard Harris's term, uh, offering up new imaginative scenarios, right? that, that they can think in different ways, that they could conceive in different ways that I didn't have. Um, mm -hmm. that hopefully, Right. That, that they could see alternatives that, that I couldn't see or ones beyond the ones I see, mm -hmm. different vistas. Well, just as, uh, you know, our books, uh, hopefully, have a deep impact on readers. And I think what you're talking about, I mean, that's I think that I walked away from reading the book thinking this is a book that opens possibilities rather than sort of closes the circle. I mean, I, I think that's absolutely an effect of the book. So, so you know, one reader, I'll say, is absolutely Thank successful. You. But, you know, we're, we as writers are also changed by our books, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's not a, I think the fantasy, I mean, I certainly had it when I was a grad student. Of this, You write a book because you have a big thing to say, and you say it, and you finally get your words out. We're changed by the writing of books, yeah. right? You discover you transform. And so how do you walk away in that way from this book? And I mean that just in terms of your own philosophical sensibilities, like how, how does this, how did this book change those? You've spoken to it a bit, but why mm -hmm. not uh, wrap up with this? Yeah. Uh, but also, you know, this also an invitation to, to say anything you want about future projects, because, you know, every book opens upon, you know, mm -hmm. new things f for authors to think about, not just readers to think about. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm still in that, that period where you, you drop this book out into the world and you wait for people to say something. <laughs> and so I, I'm still yeah, waiting. Yeah, by, by, the, by the way, I forgot to say, this is not like, you know, come on, what's the next project? Right, right. <laughs> Bask in the glory of the book. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I think the positive thing that I felt for myself is that um, I think through writing the book, maybe the freedom that it allowed me, and I had a contract and my editors seemed to like what I was writing. Um, I found a certain style that I thought, I think suits me, um, that allows me to be snarky and thoughtful and clear and use allegory and metaphor and still try to make arguments. Um, mm -hmm. that, 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 you know, I really did feel that at certain times that there was a beautiful dance happening that, that it just like, like, wow, I'm engaged in this. Wow. Uh, mm -hmm. 
And so I guess that would be the huge thing is sort of walking away feeling like I have a style that I like. And I, as long as the reviews come back, you know, I, I, I will continue. <laughs> uh, <laughs> some of the projects I'm working on now, I guess, uh, no, I, I am working on them. Uh, it's more about creativity, imagination, and what to do. Mm-hmm. Like, so extending the last chapter on, um, thinking about what types of things we can do. Um, I, I've been reading a lot of uh, Sylvia Winter, Catherine Hittrick, um, some of this guy, what's his name? Uh, John Drabinsky. Uh, oh, that's uh, profound stuff there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and so I'm, I'm doing lots of reading and thinking about creativity, the poetics of, uh, you know, knowledge, uh, mm-hmm. poetics of relation. Um, and just and just trying to think about how we can use this conception of poetic knowledge, uh, how we can think differently. And, uh, and I think this is an extension of some of these ideas that I, I, I'm nabbing from, from Leonard Harris. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm just trying to imagine, think more about how to use them and where does the literary and the poetic play into it. The other side note is that I'm writing a book on Du Bois too. Oh, well, that's not a that's not a side note. That's a side note. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I mean, you mentioned Du Bois. I, I and I actually did think of Du Bois when you were talking about that. Is you know, I think Du Bois is someone. Not I think Du Bois is someone who really worked at that intersection of of poetics and philosophy and yeah. sort of positivist social science at a certain point and political polemic. Um, and I think that notion of poetics and Du Bois um, is often really underplayed, despite the fact that Souls of Black Folk is just one story about creation after another. But, yeah, yeah. Um, well, those sound, I, that, that sounds fascinating. I, I can't wait to, to see where all of that takes you. And, and in particular, uh, you know, re-engaging Du Bois, especially coming out of this book, like rereading Du Bois in the shadow of this book, I think would be um, absolutely fascinating. As much as there's been written on Du Bois, uh, there's always more to be uh, done. And I, I love this horizon of this book as a horizon in which you could read uh, Du Bois. I'm really curious to see where that goes. And, you know, when it's out, we'll have another podcast conversation. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> Well, Lee, I really appreciate you taking the time. This has been super interesting. I love the book. um, And I love talking about books because in conversations like this, I think, uh, you know, they get even more interesting, both in terms of the background and the aspirations. So I really appreciate you taking the time and sort of pondering over the details of these kinds of things with me today. Thanks so much. Uh, Appreciate all the work you're doing with all this. And uh, I look forward to seeing what else comes up. All right. Well, you take care. All right. You too.